All right. Thank you for coming back. That's a blessing. The maybe what will be slightly um, different than maybe a typical a typical revival or a typical is I'm I'm not I'm not actually just aiming to get a decision out of you. Sure. Um, and there, there are times when the when the purpose of the preaching is really is some kind of personal self development, and God does that. Is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So God has to work in you so God can work through you. And so, so really the messages are intentionally um, academic in the sense that we're looking to find what the Bible teaches about this pattern. How do we complete what we talked about? We started in Sunday school that, that the great commission is a mandate, right? This is, this is not a great suggestion. It's not the great option. Um, it is, it's a commission, but it's a mandate. So we were actually commanded to preach the gospel to every creature. And you know what, what hit my mind is over the last few years as I've been dwelling on it is that if we, I, have not preached the gospel to every creature, then I'm, then I'm in a state of disobedience. Like if I am not aiming for that goal, um, then I'm in disobedience. I'm not allowed to have a goal lower than that. Your church is not allowed to have a goal or a vision lower than that. So a lot of, a lot of things that churches do is they'll, they'll work on at some point, you know, what is our church's vision? Why does our church exist? And in fact, when I was in Fiji a number of years ago, No Sorry Baptist Church, we actually sat down together and said, what, what is the vision? Why does this church exist? Um, and there's a lot of noble things that can be done, but, but a vision is your ultimate aim. Right? At the end of the day, what are we aiming for? And that's important so that everything you do fits into that vision. And what, what could our vision be lower than all mankind being reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ through his gospel? Right? That's a vision. That's what God wants. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we, we can't have a goal lower than that. So then that's a, if that's a vision, what is the mission? Well, the mission was also given to us. Preach the gospel to every creature. Right? That's, that's our marching orders. Um, so don't allow your vision or mission to be less than what God instructed us in his words. It will change everything you do. It's a very uncomfortable vision and mission, by the way. Um, if you as a church can have a lower vision, and maybe the vision would be, you know, reaching Bakersfield and uh, our surrounding areas, I mean, that's wonderful to reach Bakersfield, but that's not the Great Commission, right? The Great Commission is the whole world. A church is not responsible for its own city. It's responsible for the entire world. Your city, we would say, is your headquarters for the world. When we established churches in third world countries like Fiji, where we spent uh, most of our ministry, um, this is what we said to each church that we established, that their goal is not to reach their people. Sometimes we planted a church in Fiji so the Fijians can reach Fijians. But what did we notice about the church at Philippi or the church at Thessalonica or the church at Rome? Where, where were they reaching? They were all reaching the whole world. And, you know, I was just in Fiji for 16 days with a team, and we, we basically preached very similar themes to this. And it was interesting because the Fijians started researching what countries they can go to without a visa. Because you understand the American passport gets you just about anywhere in the world. 
And uh, we found out that there's countries all over the world that Fijians can, can get a visa on arrival. And so now a lot of our Fijian brethren with very limited money and resources are now intentionally praying that God would open doors for them to go to the world, not just to their country. So uh, a mandate. We must. That, that has to be the vision of what we do. All right. Then the second message we said that, that missions is an all-church strategy. This is not delegated to a few people within the body. Now, different people in the body will have different responsibilities given to them by God, but your responsibility for the Great Commission is no less than your pastor. Like, your pastor doesn't have a greater responsibility for the souls of the world than you do. You have to own that as a member of this church. So and it's going to require a whole church involvement. No spectators, no clergy, laity, no, no people who just fund the people who do the work. Everybody has to be involved. So then thirdly tonight, this is going to be a great study. The title of the message tonight is that missions is journeys. Missions is journeys. And let's pray before we dig into God's word. Father, thank you again for this evening. Thank you for... Um, Lord, that's a large portion of this church family back this evening, and I, I thank you, Lord, for their uh, being here. Uh, hopefully, Lord, not just out of duty because it's the right place to be, but, Lord, out of hunger and desire to, uh, to know you and to understand how can we actually fulfill this commission that you've placed in front of us. And I pray, Lord, tonight that you would give everyone in this body ears to hear and that you would continue to bless um, this assembly, and uh, through their pastor and staff and the members, may this church have clarity on this commission and how to do it. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, before, we're going we're gonna to be in Acts 8 in just a moment. We're going to follow a little bit um, where we left off this morning. Uh, we saw that the church at Jerusalem, how many of them were scattered abroad? They were all scattered abroad. Uh, the... the if, if God was to show us everything that everybody did, it would be, the, the book would be too big. Um, so what God does is he picks patterns and he picks examples and he hones in on the particular parts that he wants recorded in his everlasting word. And what God, what God records is sufficient for us. Like we get all the information we need from what's there. But I promise you at some point in heaven, we're going to go to the grand eternal movie theater, and the Lord's going to say, let me show you the rest of the story and everything that happened. Missions is journeys. Missions is journeys. I want you to get this in your mind. Missions is journeys. So let's think about the greatest missionary ever, the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent his son into the world. And Jesus spent three and a half years um, doing his ministry. And if you were to do what I suggested this morning uh, and get a map and track the journeys of Jesus Christ, it will blow your mind away how fast Jesus Christ moved. All right? uh, we, had a, we had a brother in our church one time that was, it was, he put a great big board up of uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and just tracked chronologically through the life of Christ. And Jesus is everywhere all the time, always moving. Uh, Jesus would get to a city and they would want him to stay. And what would Jesus say? I can't stay. I have to get to other cities also. Uh, do you think they could have used the ministry of Jesus a little bit longer if he would have stuck around a little longer? Sure. And then he got the 12. And what did he do with the 12? 
He sent them two by two where? Into every city where he would go. And then he had the 70. And what did he do with the 70? He sent them. So even Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, he, he did his ministry by journeys. He moved around. And did he ever come back to a place he'd already been? Yes, of course he did. He would come back and revisit and sit them down again. Now we, we, Jesus has uh, been crucified, buried. He's risen again from the dead. And now we open up uh, the book of Acts. And we begin to watch how this is going to happen post-Jesus Christ with the giving of his Holy Spirit to the church. And so we see that they fill Jerusalem with their doctrine. And then Acts 8 really begins the journeys. <clears throat> so the church at Jerusalem, how many of them have been scattered? All of them have been scattered. And they're now going Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and all the way up into Syria. So it's quite a large area. But when we get to chapter number 8, the Bible is going to focus in on one particular man and his journeys, and that is Philip. So let's get to Acts chapter number 8, verse number 5, because verse 4 says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. They went everywhere preaching the word. And then it focuses in on Philip. It says, Then went Philip down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ there. All right, then you can read through most of that chapter, and you can read about what happened in that city of Samaria. It was exciting, by the way. And then verse number 25. And they, when they had testified, by the way, there, was, there were more people with Philip than just he himself. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of what? The Samaritans. So notice the journey. So Philip goes to a city of Samaria, preaches, he returns back to Jerusalem, and then they preach the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So I just want you to know there's nothing stationary about what's happening here. Notice the journeys. But then in verse number 26, the Bible says, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. And this, we're going to come back and revisit this story later in the week. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and missions and, and why the real captain of this ministry is the Holy Spirit of God. Um, he was doing well in Samaria. Hey, you look at the ministry there. Uh, the, the city of Samaria has just blossomed with gospel ministry. They've had an open door in all the villages. And right in the middle of that, the angel of the Lord, which you'll see later, is the Holy Spirit, says to him, arise and go down to the south to a place that is desert by Gaza. And that's exactly what he does. He goes down and he meets somebody there, doesn't he? Yeah, he meets somebody there, very important, this Ethiopian eunuch. And I can't, I got to not say what I want to say because that's the next sermon. It's so cool what happens with that. But he gets down there. He meets this Ethiopian eunuch. He's at the right place at the right time. And he leads the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord, and they stop the chariot immediately when they find a pool of water, and he baptizes him. And then look at verse 39. It says, And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And you know, wouldn't that be just like a just cool, weird baptism? You know, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, buried in light, and poof, he's gone. Yeah. And when he's gone, where is he? But Philip was found at Azotus. Uh, and again, um, 
There's another beautiful map that will show you where Azotus is. Does anybody know where Azotus is? Yeah, it's, it's in your maps, by the way. You know, modern, not modern versions, but the modern Bibles put maps in the back on purpose. So if you were up here at um, Samaria, you would go all the way down to Gaza, which is desert, and then Azotus is all the way south, right on the seaboard. So you'd be down at Azotus. And the Bible says, and passing through, he preached in what? All the cities. All the cities till he came to Caesarea. Well, now you've got to go north all along the seaboard, and you're going to pass all the way back up to get into all the cities of Caesarea. So what I want you to know is right here on the first church mission where the entire body is spread abroad, it was journeys. It wasn't stayings. We don't study missionary stayings. We study missionary journeys. And that's exactly what's happening. He's getting down from one city to another city to another city to another city to another city. All right. Then after that, we, of course, once we turn to Acts chapter number 13, we get into um, what we would now study classically as Paul's missionary journeys. And there's already been church planting, evangelism, uh, uh, churches being multiplied before we get to this point. And then in Acts 13, you know, the elders of this church are gathered together. They're praying together. And as they're ministering to the Lord, the Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. So they lay their hands on them and they send them away. I want you to notice that when they laid hands on them, and by the way, that's Acts 13, 1, 2, and 3. When they laid their hands on them and sent them away, where did they send them? Where was the mission field that God had called Paul and Barnabas? Like, where were they being sent to? Did did you see any city there? Did you see any country there? Did you see any place there? Well, we do know that they went to Seleucia, but when they, when they laid their hands and sent them away, where, where was the church sending them to? Huh? N- n- nowhere in particular, which could also be uh, anywhere and everywhere. Notice it said they, they laid their hands on them. Um, let's go back. We'll look at verse 2 again. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate Barnabas and Saul for the work weren't to have called them. So they were called to a work, not a place. And I wonder what the work was. Preach the gospel to who? All nations and every creature. So they were sent into that work. So they laid their hands on them. When they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. But where? Well, they decide, let's go down to Cyprus. And Cyprus, of course, when you study, is where Barnabas was from. That was Barnabas' hometown. And when you, when you listen earlier in the book of Acts, you will find that like some from the day of Pentecost and some from other places, Cyprus had already had some converts that were there. So Barnabas, let's, let's go through my island. Let's go down and preach there. But they were sent away not to a particular place. <clears throat> and if you read Acts chapter 13 and 14, those two chapters are what we call Paul's first missionary journey, right? And that covers all the places that they went to during that journey. All right, a little bit of information for you. That particular missionary journey 
was about 1,500 miles. So 1,500 miles by foot, by donkey, and a little bit on boat when they sailed into Cyprus and they sailed north into Antioch, Pisidia. About 1,500 miles. Anybody ever walk that far? Walk, walk or donkey, you know, that far? Um, uh, they say it was about, uh, about 53 of those days were, were the travel days in between places, roughly or so. But more than 1,500 miles. They preached at Salamis and Paphos, that's on Cyprus. They went north into Perga. Then they went to Antioch, Pisidia. Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, and then they traveled back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They ordained elders in all of those places, by the way, uh, in Antioch, Pisidia, then Pamphylia, Atalia, and then they got back to Antioch of Syria. Now, that, that's a lot of places I just mentioned. And you know, when you read those journeys, these are places that they went, they evangelized, they baptized, they established churches, and then they returned and revisited those churches, and ordained elders in all of those churches. So if I was to ask you, let me count up here. There's Salamis, Paphos, Perga, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. So there, there are seven cities where we know that churches were established, and they went through, and then they came back to those cities again and ordained elders in all of those cities. You know, if I told you, hey, I would like, I'd like you to get a team together, and I want you to go out, um, and on a 1,500-mile journey, I want you to get seven cities, and I want you to establish churches in those seven cities, and I want you to train them well enough to ordain elders in all of those cities. And you only get to work from new converts, right? You, you don't get any transfer members from anywhere else. How long do you think it would take you? Well, I can tell you that my first round admissions, uh, our family were missionaries in the Fiji Islands, and we spent 23 years in Fiji. All right, so we were in Fiji. We also worked in Nauru, Tuvalu, uh, the Philippines a little bit, but we were primarily based in Fiji. And we planted five churches in Fiji. We co-planted with other missionaries a church in Nauru and Tuvalu and one in the Philippines. So basically, we did eight churches in 23 years. All right? Now, to a lot of people, that sounds like, wow, that's really amazing. Right? Not a lot of pastors in the U.S. could claim they planted eight churches in 23 years. In addition to that, um, we've had teams that have gone into every public high school in Fiji, 178 high schools. Right? We've preached the gospel to all those students. They all got a Bible. We took teams of creation scientists, and we went back with a beautiful creation science devotional into every school. When we were in Fiji in this last, uh, the, um, this last trip, we did a youth camp, a revival meeting, and then in one day, we hit preschools, a couple thousand students, you know, preaching the gospel to them. So it wasn't just planting churches. We were attempting to evangelize. You know, you think, okay, that, that was a pretty good run until you read the Bible. As long as you can compare yourself to something a lot slower than you, you can feel like we did a really great job. And, I, and, and by the way, the churches that we established, um, one of them has disappeared, no longer exists. One of them is hobbling along, and a few of them are thriving. So it's not that all of them survive, by the way. And what you always want, you want them all to survive, and you feel discouraged if they don't survive. And I'll tell you, you ought to read the letters Paul had to write back to some of the churches he started. Like, he writes to one, he says, where's the blessedness? Where have you spake? There was one time you would have plucked your eye out from me. Now you don't even want me to come any longer. And, of course, you can look at the great church at Corinth, 
And Paul probably feeling real proud about what he left behind in, uh, in Corinth. But nonetheless, it took me 23 years to do that. Paul's first missionary journey, where at least seven congregations were established and men were, or, uh, were ordained in each of those cities, that journey was anywhere from 9 to 18 months. In fact, Paul's entire first, second, and third missionary journeys, all three of them, was probably no more than 12 years. Lord, what did I miss? Paul's entire first missionary journey was completed in less than half the time it takes a new missionary to go on deputation. You know, and can I just, this has, I, I have no intention to preach about this, but what a really bad idea we came up with when we called deputation. I, I would challenge you to open the pages of the Bible and read it, and it doesn't exist. You know what does exist? What is clearly taught? We can give very clear evidence that multiple churches co-supported missionary teams from various churches. There is no doubt that churches collectively got involved in helping to fund missions to get there. What is not in the Bible is anywhere from two to four years of traveling around to churches to raise support. Like, where did we come up with this idea and why are we still doing it? Um, again, I don't actually have a message on deputation in here, but just for the fun of it, I'll throw some statistics at you. It costs a missionary family on average $100,000 a year to be on deputation. So what, what that cost would be, you, you can imagine if you planned a family vacation where you would travel for a year and you would stay in hotels and eat at restaurants. How much do you think it would cost? Have you ever done a family vacation, like, like a two-week family vacation? Have you ever looked at how much you spend to stay in hotels and eat food and drive for those couple? Of, so just imagine you say, I'm going to go on a one-year family vacation and we're going to stay in hotels and eat at restaurants for that whole amount of time. And we're going to travel thousands of miles while we do it. So the cost of that is shared between the missionary who's getting love offerings and getting support and between the churches who pay those things for them, $100,000 a year. Now, I did these calculations about seven years ago, so it's probably more than that now. But if a, if a missionary takes three years to get to the field, how much money is that? That's $300,000. he will raise about another $30,000 to resettle his family on a field. That's $330,000. That means for every three missionaries that we get to the mission field, we will spend $1 million. Okay, The $1 million of missions money given in independent Baptist churches, we will spend $1 million of that for every three. But we've got a problem because about one out of three missionaries start deputation and don't finish it. And then of those that get to the field, one out of four either doesn't finish a first term or comes after that. So you've got to add the cost of two more guys into those that we have to get three to the field. We actually have to pay the cost of getting five there. So that's about a million and a half dollars to get three missionary families to the foreign mission field. Right? That's not even the support while they're there on the field, that's the cost of circulating them around America. And then every four years, they've got to come back and go around to all the churches and show pictures of what they've done. Like, like we're going to have one year of just telling you what we did. What a great use of time. I mean, really, what a great use of time. If you calculate the cost of deputation and the cost of a furlough every four years, and if you were to take that money and spread it out over a 20-year period for the missionary, it's going to cost on average $70,000 a year 
That's the amount per missionary spent just for deputation and furloughs, if we were to spread it out. Not including what they actually need to live once they get on the field. And that, by the way, could be a whole other story of how much money does a missionary actually need to go on a mission field. I won't even touch there, but I'm just saying we're wasting a whole lot of money. There's got to be a better way to do it. When I would bring this up as a missionary, I'd bring this up with pastors along the way, and here's collectively what would always be said. Well, I mean, it's, it's the system that we've been handed. What can we do about it? Like, well, if my church changed, we can't change the whole system, so we've, we've got to kind of just work with the system that we have. And I'm like, and there we go, the reason we have 3 billion people on the world that have never heard the name Jesus Christ. I mean, what if we could take all the manpower that's circulating around America right now saying, hi, my name is, and I'm going to. What if we could release the missionaries from that and just send them, like just go to the, and let them actually preach the gospel where they're supposed to go? Now, now for me, part of what I feel, part of my calling and responsibility, I'm saying all of these things as a missionary who spent the greater part of my life doing it by the system that we collectively do. So I'm not speaking about this as an outsider. I'm speaking it as an insider who's done it, who doesn't want to keep wasting this much time, who's very burdened with, you know, what's possible out in the world. Okay, so that was a little detour. Let's come back to where we were now. Where were they called? They were called to the world. Jesus said, the field is the world. So when you're called, see, this really burdens me. Because there'll be a young man who's 12 years old who will be sitting in a church service and God may use, God may use a missionary presentation or something to really touch this young man. And this young man may say, I think, I think God's calling me uh, into missions and I think he's called me and he'll name a city or a country to where, where he's going to go. And then 13 years later, when he finishes high school, finishes Bible college, finishes internship and finishes deputation. By the way, four years of Bible college, two years of internship, Three years of deputation. You know, the average person after high school needs nine years. And that nine years of training and equipping and preparing, Paul's almost finished all of his missionary journeys. You you talk about the molasses model. You talk about the molasses model. And what, what I'm saying is we need Bible college because, because, I don't think we've utilized the church the right way. Because if the idea of the church was, we're going to teach and train everybody in the church, all the doctrines of the Bible, and everybody's going to be equipped for ministry, Bible college would go out of business because we say, hey, sorry, by the time our kids turned 18, we already, we already actually taught them everything they're going to get in Bible college. So they're ready to go. That's what the Mormons do. Mormons have an eight-week training in Salt Lake City before they go around the world, and they're, they're going right around the world like crazy because they don't have a molasses model um, like we do. They were called to the work. This is exciting. You get called to the work. Jesus would say things like to his disciples, he'd say, now when you go into a city and you go there, and if they don't receive what you're preaching, what are you supposed to do? Take the dust off your feet. Paul did that a couple of times in the book of Acts. But because our model of missions is stayings, not journeyings, we feel like if God led us to a certain city, if we go to that city and nobody receives the gospel, we, we somehow feel noble that we just stay there forever and keep on preaching. Like, like what if those people reject it? 
no, I'm going to stay here and until, you know, now I'm not saying God may not tell you to stay there, by the way. But I'm saying the general pattern of God is you move. And that's going to come later. So let me not get ahead of myself on that. They were called to journeys. Um, can I have a, the picture of the map now? Um, this is Paul's missionary journeys. All right. These are um, three missionary journeys. What's not included on this map here is his. Oh, no, this his fourth one is actually there. His journey to Rome. So there's the four missionary journeys. Three of them are recorded in the book of Acts that you can read about. The fourth one is inferred from things that he wrote in his letters where he finally ends up before Rome. So let me give you a little math. Paul's first missionary journey, 1,581 miles. <clears throat> Paul's second missionary journey, 3,050 miles. His third missionary journey, 3,307. And his final one to Rome, 2,344. That means Paul and his team traveled over 10,000 miles by foot, by donkey, or by boat. See, what I want you to get into your mind is that missions is journeys. Now, this means that Paul did not spend a large amount of time in each city that he preached. The longest we find Paul spending in any city was Ephesus. And I think if you combine Paul's two journeys to Ephesus, you'll find that it was about three and a half years. Two years of that was him sitting in the school of Tyrannus, and somehow God opened an unusual door in the school of Tyrannus because it said he taught and disputed there daily until all Asia had heard the word of the Lord. So what it appears was happening in that school of Tyrannus there was a steady flow of people coming from all over Asia that were coming to listen to Paul's disputations. And they were, I don't know, did they get saved when they were there? Did they get trained? What happened? But really two years and God uniquely had him stationed in one spot, but it wasn't for the church at Ephesus. Paul wasn't pastoring the church at Ephesus. In fact, Paul didn't ever pastor any of the churches that he was at. He would have a pastoral role, obviously, when you're gathering those people together, they're getting baptized, and they're getting discipled, but he didn't stay there, and he didn't ever become the bishop, if you will, the ordained elder of that particular church. So two of the three and a half years in Asia was Paul focusing on all Asia, not just the city of, um, of Ephesus. Uh, the other place he spent a large amount of time was at Corinth, 18 months. And it seems that was a, a bit of a disaster. You know, what was left, like the longer he spent, the more of a disaster the church was. Could we say that? No. But it just, it just tells you length of time does not always give stability. How many churches do we know in America, Baptist churches, that have existed for 20 years? Right? One pastor, 20 years. That pastor leaves. The next pastor comes along. And like within a short amount of time, the, the doctrine, practice, and philosophy of that church has changed. Uh, length of time does not always equal long-term stability. However, I wonder if, so when, when an average missionary gets his training and he gets sent into his mission field, the place that he's going to go, um, he's been taught and trained that he is to go in as a church planter. So he's going to go into a city, and if you look at an average missionary card, what are you going to do? We're going to plant, we're going to evangelize the lost, we're going to plant churches, we're going to train nationals, and then we're going to do it again. So what the average missionary does is he goes into a city, and he 
he finds a place to meet, right? Because you, you can't plant a church unless you find a place to meet. Except when you read the Bible, Paul never found a place to meet, ever. There's a whole lot of time and money wasted finding places to meet. Actually, when you read the Bible, they didn't find places to meet. They found people to meet. They found people. They went down by the river. Lydia got saved. And Lydia said, why don't you come in my home? That became the spot. Aquila and Priscilla had a church in their house. I'm not, I'm not promoting a, a house church movement, but I'm saying meeting in a house is a great cheap place to meet if there's enough room for the people that are, that are coming. Right? Paul didn't go look for locations to meet. He looked for people. What if we forgot about, I, I need a location? Because what you do, the moment you get into a place and then you rent a building, this is the place we're going to start our church. It's now no longer about people. It's about a place. And once you start paying rent and you put all the chairs in there, you put all the songbooks in there, you put everything in there, now you're tied. And success is like, can I fill the place? But what if you didn't need a place? What if all you did when you entered that city was start evangelizing? Can that actually work? Well, what happens with, with, when people, when they get saved and they, they want to know where to go? Well, if church planting was not your first priority, if evangelizing, baptizing, and discipling, the, the place will take care of itself along the way. It always took care of its place. In fact, we can't find much instruction in here of Paul telling them where to meet because I don't think Paul saw that as his responsibility. It was evangelizing people. And then when people get saved, then I've got all kinds of really cool stories about how this has worked over and over and over and over and over again. And we'll touch into some of those. But he was called to a place. Now, if you knew that you could only get to a place for a limited amount of time, how long? This is really cool. How did God help Paul keep moving? He got the boot. And from the very beginning when Paul got saved, Jesus said, I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And, and, and Paul had to leave town every time because the preaching of the gospel was an offense, right? So he got kicked out. He got beaten. He got stoned. You've, you've read the list of all the things that happened to Paul, and he was never able to return to many of those cities. You remember in 2 Corinthians, I think, 12, where Paul would go before the Lord and he'd say, Lord, please remove this thorn in the flesh. You ever heard people try to decipher, what is Paul's thorn in the flesh? Well, it says there in the text, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, comma, the messenger of Satan sent to buffet me, comma. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it would be removed from me. So what was his thorn in the flesh? It was the messenger of Satan sent to buffet him everywhere he went. And so this persecution would force Paul out. And then you, like when you read the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul will say, I wanted to come back to you once and again, but Satan hindered me. And that was the truth. Satan did hinder him, and God allowed Satan to hinder him because God wanted Paul moving along, getting the gospel into journeys. So let's say if you realized, at most, if I get into a new city, at most I'm going to have three months. Or I might have three weeks. Paul's pattern was three Sabbath days. That's about as much as they could take it before they wanted to kill him. But what if, what if you knew? Paul said, I'm going to this particular city, but the Holy Ghost witness, witnesses in every city that stripes and imprisonment, they abide me. I'm not going to get out of this. So this is going to happen again in the next city. How would it change your work amongst the people if you knew you only had three months? How much can people actually learn in three months? But you see, the average missionary goes, I've got four years. I've got four years of this term, so I'm going to plant myself in this city. And when you know you have four years, 
it changes the intensity with which you disciple people. Make sure you come back on Wednesday night. Hope to see you next Sunday. Or maybe a a one-hour discipleship in the week. But if you went into that city and you knew, I might have three months here, and you might never see my face again after these three months, what could actually be taught and put in the hearts of people in three months' time? Oh, you can put a lot in those people. In fact, you can give them the foundation and the tools within those three months that once you leave, if you, if you put the right tools and the right foundation, the Spirit of God can do the rest of the work after you're gone. And that's how New Testament Christianity got around the world in 32 years. You couldn't do four years in this city and four years in that city and four years. If Paul did a four years per city model, he would have only planted three churches in the, in the 12 years of his journeys. And, but in fact, look what he did. Look what he did in those 12 years. It, it might make more sense now when you realize that in many of the churches, they assembled daily. We took a team from our church to Africa. Uh, we felt that God was leading our church to evangelize in, uh, in Zambia. And in our, in our first trip that we took there, we went for um, close to three weeks. And in the last week of our journey, a, a man had gotten saved in Lusaka, the capital city. And he, um, he shared his testimony on Facebook. One of his friends saw his salvation testimony. He tagged me on the post, and that friend communicated with me and basically said, I would like this same thing that my cousin got. And so I said to him, why don't you come to church on Sunday, and I'll, I'll meet you after the service. And he said, well, I live a little bit far from here. And I said, well, where is that? And he said, Mongo. I'm like, I don't know what that is. So I said to the missionary, where's Mongo? And he's like, brother, that's on the other side of Zambia, the western side. And it's about a 10-hour drive. And the second half of that drive is some of the worst roads in Africa. So I got that message on a Saturday. We were leaving on the following Friday to come back to America. And I had a request from one man who's on the other side of the country saying, come over and help us. Oh, that, that almost sounds like something in the Bible. And, and I, not to get ahead of myself, but that Holy Ghost in missions, if you get out of the traditional model to the journey model, you'll find that God actually leads you to a harvest every time. God knows where the harvest is. Instead of beating at a, a dead door, God can actually lead you to open doors. But we'll get to that. So I realized that for me to get a group of our guys to travel to Mongo, we needed to rent a vehicle. We needed a really good four-wheel drive vehicle to drive across. We'd have to get a hotel owner over there. It's going to cost us about $1,000. And, you know, do we spend $1,000 to follow up on? Because, you know, when you get to Africa, they've got all kind of like Nigerian kings with lots of money and bank accounts for everybody if you just come. Like, how do you you know if you're getting sold a bill of goods? So we prayed about it. I wrote back. I emailed our church, and I said, hey, can you guys send us an extra $1,000? The church said, okay. They sent the money, so a few of us went. I took the guy with me who got saved in Lusaka, and I said, I need you to go journey with us. So we went over to Mongu. About three hours before we got to Mongu, this local Zambian going with us, um, his cell phone died. And so he said, well, he told me that he would be waiting at a particular roundabout in town for us when we get there. And I'm like, okay. So we finally get into uh, Mongu. We send somebody to get us a, a hotel. 
We had to work on a few logistical things, and we show up to that roundabout, and that guy is standing on that roundabout, and he's got three of his friends with him. So we pick him up. We come over to our hotel, if you can call it a hotel. Like a, when I say hotel in western rural Zambia, Africa, right. Um, it had a bed. It had a wall. It had other critters that lived with us, but it was a hotel. We sat down at a picnic table, and, and so I told these uh, young men, I said, okay, what we're going to do, we were, by the way, we were going to spend one day. We got in there on uh, Tuesday afternoon. We were going to spend all day Wednesday, and then Thursday we had to leave in the morning to drive back. So I said, why don't you come tomorrow at 3 o'clock? We're going to just go do some evangelizing in the town. We'll have a 3 o'clock kind of like a, a service. You guys invite people to come, and we'll preach the gospel. And those guys said, no, we want to hear the gospel tonight. Can you tell it to us? Um, tonight. So he sat down at the table. Mike, the guy from Lusaka, shared how he got saved to his friends. And then I preached the gospel. And before we were done, all four of those guys very authentically received Christ as their savior. Now, the next morning, all four of those guys showed up at our hotel about nine o'clock. And they said, we want to help you go out and evangelize and bring people. So we'd gone off and printed a bunch of gospel tracks off. And uh, they sat there and wrote a local phone number because what's going to happen, right? We're going to preach and we're going to leave. So one of them put their phone numbers on there. So if anybody was interested, they would call their number. We went out three o'clock. We had a service. Uh, close to 30 people just showed up for this service. We preached the gospel. Now, the guy who came from Lusaka with me was going to be my translator. Because all they, although they spoke okay English, Lozi was the local language. Well, he was a terrible translator great guy. So one of the guys who was a visitor, he raised his hand up and he said, he's doing a bad job. Could I do the translating for him? So that visitor gets up and he's also a bad translator. And so finally a third guy, his name is Mike Muti. Mike, Mike said, no, 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 please let, let me translate. So I now have a second lost visitor coming up to help me translate. So I'm, I'm preaching the gospel. I take about an hour and a half because to me, I've got to make sure that the gospel is clear, that they understand it. There's no mistaking. After preaching for about an hour and a half, um, I, I gave some quiet time for them to think about it and perhaps pray to trust Christ. So at the end, I, I had, uh, we didn't do heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody looking around. That's a very American thing uh, to do. Paul used to do that, uh, by the way. I'm just kidding. See, I'm now, of course, stop doing that. So I just said, at the end of that preaching, I said, I've preached and presented the gospel to you, and I am curious to know uh, if you understood it. Do you understand it? Did you believe it? And is there anybody here that after doing that, that you have called on Christ and you've, you've accepted him as your savior? And then one man put his hand up and he said, basically, I thank God what I've heard today. I always thought salvation was by some kind of good works that you do. Now I understand that it's only the blood of Jesus. It's only, and I've taken Christ as my savior. And then another person stood up and another one stood up. And then finally, my translator, who was a visitor, by the way, he only came that day because somebody said there's Mzungus, which are white people, giving jobs. And he was desperate for a job. And when he found out it wasn't a job, he was about to leave. And they said, well, you might as well stay and listen. And he ended up being my translator. And then at the end, he said, I've gone to a Salvation Army church my whole life, and I've never heard this salvation, that it's free, that it's the blood, and I've taken Christ as my Savior as well. By the way, a number of those people that got saved on that day to this day are part of a church that we've now established in that place. Well, we had to leave the next day. 
What do you do when you've now had like 17 professions of faith and you're leaving the next day? Like, what do you do? I mean, what, what a sloppy method of evangelizing the, the world. I'm like, Lord, I know missions is journeys, and it's like, sure, but Paul had three Sabbaths. Lord, we're not even getting the three Sabbath days here. So we left them. We got all their numbers on a piece of paper. The one guy who actually called me to come out there, I said to him, okay, you got to keep trying to follow up on these people. You guys try to meet together. We'll stay in contact. We'll try to get back soon. And then we left the next day. And the next day we flew back to America. So then, in our church, I got a couple of young men um, who had made a previous trip to Zambia. These guys are 19 and 20 years old. And I said, we need you guys to go back for a couple of months. Why don't you go back and then get that phone list and go find those people and see if you can disciple them. And if there's any true converts, you guys can baptize them as well. We'll commission you for that. So we took two of our young men, and off we sent them, and off they went to Zambia, and they found those people. They started get, and those people had been trying to meet every Sunday. It was, oh, my goodness, what fun it was. Because I finally get back another few months later, and one of the guys is uh, – trying to introduce the service before he introduces me to come up and preach. And he was talking about how much he loved the story of, of David. You know, uh, David, he killed Goliath. And then after that, he got thrown into the lion's den. And, you know, it came all out. I, I kid you not. I'm like, oh, I love this, Father. I love this. This is so wonderful. So they ended up baptizing three of the guys. And then a couple months later, we took another team back out into that place. When we got back out into that place, this is now six months later, there was a group of about 15 of them still attempting to meet together. And I said, we're going to be here for a couple weeks. Um, let's do Bible studies. And you know what? We had a group of them come every day. They would show up around 3 o'clock. We had this little hut at the hotel that we would meet under. And I would get a whiteboard out there, and we would teach for hours. About the third day, um, I said to my daughter, Marissa, she was with me, and I said, we need to give them some food. These guys are coming every day, right? They don't have any food. Just make some sandwiches. We'll give them sandwiches and some juice and some water. So I had been teaching for about three hours. And then the girls came out, and they'd made some food. They put it on a little table. And I said, we're going to take a break, right? Let's pray. We'll go eat some, um, some sandwiches, some refreshments, and then we'll come back and study again. So I prayed for the food. And then I got up, and I went over to the table because I'd been teaching for three hours, and I was starving and thirsty. But as I'm standing out by the table, none of those group under that uh, hut are moving. And they kind of sit there for a minute, and I'm like, I should wait till they get out here, you know. And then finally, one of them, kind of a spokesman, comes out, and he says to me, uh, could you please come back in and keep teaching? We don't want to eat or drink until we finish the teaching. That was after three hours. We go back in there for another two hours. We have five hours of teaching, and they would come back the next day and the next day and the next day. You know why? They're hungry, and they knew we had limited time together. Uh, how much teaching do you think you could get done if you knew that you were going to be in a place? Do you think they would come every day? Americans won't come every day. You know, literally, we have a revival meeting once a year, and to get people to give up three nights in a row, it's like, yeah, how am I going to do it? And then every time a pastor says, now, don't worry, we'll get in, we'll preach, and we'll get you out of here right on time. 
Well, Paul didn't do that. When Paul showed up and they had another opportunity to have Paul for a short amount of time, Paul would preach all the way into the night to the wee hours of the morning. And the only people at risk were people sitting in windows if they fell asleep the wrong way. But that's okay. You got Paul with you. Just raise you from the dead. I mean, when, when's the last time that you just sat and the teaching went on well into the night and the wee hours of the morning? So the, the problem with we Americans is we take our version of Christianity and think that's, that's how we have to do it there. But they, so again, the whole point was maybe assembling daily. The believers would have been very motivated to learn knowing the missionaries would be gone soon, that they would be gone soon. Perhaps our missions model has created an over-dependence on the missionary to feed the people, and we, we, it, it ends up making it too long before the local people in that assembly are ready. And, of course, I think that may happen to be a little bit of our own model here in, in the U.S., is that we are, we are very, very dependent on a pastor to feed us, and 15 years after our salvation, we can still barely spoon-feed ourselves. Um, something else interesting here about the concept of missions being journeys. The first missionary journey was anywhere from 9 to 18 months, and then they came back to uh, Antioch. When Paul came back to Antioch, they said, could you go down to Jerusalem? Because we've got a problem. There's some interference in your beautiful gospel because some people from Jerusalem have been going around saying you have to keep the law and be circumcised in order to be saved. So Paul goes back down to um, Jerusalem. He addresses that issue. Then he comes back up. And the Bible says at Antioch, it said, there they abode long time teaching and preaching the word with many others also, which means Paul was actually back part of kind of the team there at the church at Antioch teaching and preaching. My, my point is, uh, a missions journey was not necessarily a lifelong commitment. Was not necessarily a lifelong commitment. That first missionary journey was uh, about an 18-month commitment, and then they were back again. You see, I think we get the idea that the only way I can be a missionary is if, you know, God calls me, and now I have to pack up and move for the rest of my life to one location in the world, and I have to die there. Have you ever heard kind of that glorious, I'm going to die on the mission field? Well, that started sometime after World War II. I got to get the story right. But there was a particular place a group of missionaries were going to go, but there was some rabid diseases that were there that if you went and got those diseases, you, you, were, you were most likely going to die. So they knew in order for us to take the gospel there, we're probably going to die. So they packed all their belongings in coffins and put them on the ship and sailed there knowing that we're going to die there. Like, we're going to go preach the gospel there, and we're going to die there. And, and what, a, what a fantastic thing to do. Like, you, if, if you had to die to get a gospel to a, a place, would it be worth it? And the answer is, yes, it would. But it sort of got in the psyche that if I'm going to be a missionary, I have to pick a place to go, and if I don't die there, I failed as a missionary. You know, I was a missionary for 23 years, foreign, and when I came back, some people said, oh, he came off the mission field. Like, if you don't go for your whole life, you, you somehow quit or you somehow didn't make it. But, you know, Paul did 18 months and was back at his church there in, in Antioch again. Journeys. It, it is incredible what can be done with missionary journeys. 
Now, a lot of times churches do plan mission trips. Okay, we're going to do a mission trip. But a lot of times the idea of a mission trip is let's find a missionary somewhere and put a roof on his house. And by the way, that's not a bad thing to do. We were in Fiji, the national pastor that's there. We fixed all his light bulbs, all his electrical stuff. We, we did a little bit of work to make their, their living a little bit better. Um, or we feel like, you know, the reason we would take someone on a mission trip is maybe they would get a burden and they would become um, a missionary, uh, pass out a few John and Romans or something. But, but what if you realize that your mission's journeys as a church could actually result in churches being planted and churches being established? Like you can actually do real missionary work in short amounts of time. What if we rearranged our life to make it work that way? Because, you know, right now, the way we live our lives, the modern economy, the way the, the way the Western world is set up, it's set up to own you so that you can never do this. The average person who works a career, right? You, you got to work 50 out of 52 weeks out of the year. You get two weeks of vacation uh, within that year. And whatever little bit of money you can save up is spent, you know, to, to get a little bit of needed uh, rest and relaxation. Um, we, we have an economy and we have a system that owns us. I mean, barely finding time to do a little bit of ministry in our own city when we're working. We can't because we're working from sunrise to sunset. Um, and I, I'll probably address this a little bit later on. But this type of missions that we're talking about is unrealistic if we don't have massive lifestyle changes. Yes, right? The lifestyle that we live will always forbid us from doing this that is right here because we immediately say we can't afford it. We can't afford it. Can't afford. Can't afford. Ooh, Lord help me. Baby. <laughs> I got a letter years ago from a church. This church in the, the Midwest, runs about 1,500 people in their church. And I got a little letter from one of the secretaries that said, Brother Mears, just wanted to inform you that our church will no longer be able to support you um, due to financial constraints in our church. This church had a small Bible college, and they said our priority is to support our own missionaries, and after that we don't really have the funds, so we're going we're gonna to support you for another three months. So they supported me $100 a month. And they, this church of 1,500 was cutting it down. Now, what I happened to know about this church was that they had remodeled their auditorium, extended the seating a little bit, and spent about $2.5 million on the remodel. And then they built for their college a gym that had a half-Olympic-sized swimming pool and a retractable track that could go over the top of it for their wrestling matches and everything. So they had spent over the net, that, that few years over $5 million on bricks and mortar while telling a missionary, we can no longer give you $1,200 a year because it's not in our budget. Now, you should go and read um, what Haggai said to the church, the, 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 not the church, the nation of Israel when God had sent them back from Babylon to build the temple. And they only laid the foundation. And, and then for 17 years, they didn't build any more of the temple of God. And Haggai said, is it time for you to dwell in your sealed houses while my house lies waste? Seems like you had time and money, money for all of that, but not for the thing that I actually called you to do. Now, if the thing that God called us to do was to preach the gospel to every creature, it seems that that should be the priority of my life. 
And if that's the priority of my life, then it seems to me that it would be an illegitimate move for me to make to live a lifestyle in such a way that I couldn't do it. No soldier that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. If you're a soldier, you're only allowed to live a lifestyle that if the army says you're leaving tomorrow, you leave, leave tomorrow. There's, you know, so my family, um, we were missionaries for 23 years in Fiji. We came back and then I've been pastoring uh, my home church, Apple Valley Baptist Church in Wenatchee, Washington. I am married. I have nine children. And the Lord told me to go back into missions and to go back into traveling and missions. So what we did, like God told us that Saturday. So on Monday, we basically started getting everything in order to sell everything that we own. Right? I finally got my wife a very, very nice house to live in. She said, this is my grandkid house. This is finally, we've, we've moved all of our life. We've never been in one place very long. I said, this, this is the spot. And she's dreaming grandkids will be there and grandkids will be there. And then the Lord told us to sell it all. And so you know what we did? Sell it all. You would, you would be amazed how fast you could be mobile. You would be amazed how fast you could get out of everything that you have and you, you could be available for God to get the Great Commission around the world. But the truth is, we love our lifestyle, and we love our stuff so much, we're just not willing to let go of it. Right? But, but I promise you, when this life is over, and you stand at the judgment seat of Christ and report on what your motive and reasons were for what you, were, what you have done with your life, there will be some shame at that judgment seat of Christ. But let me say to you that if you really thought about it, um, for, for the older generation... The, we're, we're so far into this, detangling is a, is a hard process, so to speak. But for the young generation, you can start a little bit differently. You can start a little bit differently, like don't get yourself tangled up. Now, what if, what if you were a school teacher? Um, a school teacher, literally, that was given to the Great Commission could say, wow, I've got this really cool job that I'm paid year-round, but I work nine months out of the year. And instead of taking your summers to make more money, what if you took your summers and went to the mission field? Like, really, what if, what if you're a teacher and you took those couple of months in the summer and you said, God, send me anywhere in the world that you'd like me to go and find some people that I can go labor? What if, what if you were a builder, you ran a construction company? Well, why don't you make all your money 10 months out of the year, nine months out of the year, lower your lifestyle, and then three months out of the year, boom, you make yourself available to God anywhere, anytime. What, what about our high school students? What about our kids? You know one of the best things you could do with your kids? Send them with me. I'll take them. I'll take them. My family went to Fiji. This was supposed to be a personal visit. We hadn't been since COVID. It was a visit back home. We ended up with 22 people on our team. Of course, my family made like a little more than half of that, that 22. But I've, I've got young people. I've got young people scattered abroad. who have got nothing to do with their time. You know what our young people are doing with their time? Playing video games. You know why they're playing video games? Because they're bored. They've got nothing better to do. You know what a video game does for a, for a kid? It gives them like a, a sense of adventure. You know, okay, I've got this thing. I've got, I'm going to build this. I'm going to conquer this. Because there's something inside of young people that says, I want to build. I want to conquer. I want to do something. But we don't give them anything to do with their life that's meaningful. You know, come with me. I've been talking with a missionary in Sierra Leone and a really, really wonderful missionary. And he was showing me on a map that there's all this jungle area. And he said, there are a few tribes of people in there that have never, ever been contacted by the outside world. 
And he said, I'm, 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 I'm praying over this next year a way to get into those people. Now, there's no roads to get to them. There's no trails to get to them. Like, you actually have to use, like, a compass and do a little bit of land navigation. Uh, you have to be able to make your own camp at night. You have to filtrate your own water. You've got to self-treat all of your type of uh, diseases or whatever you might get. But, but I look at young men now, and again, I said, hey, if, if I was going to go to this area, I need, I need some strong young men. And by the way, young men, it's okay to be strong. That's what the Bible says. I've written unto you, young men, because you are strong. So be physically strong, mentally strong, spiritually strong, because that's the kind of assets that we need to get the gospel around the world. You know, we've, we've got tribes of people that live on the way up to Mount Everest. Like, we need some guys that will get physically fit enough to go climb Mount Everest so that they can get the gospel to those tribes of people that live across those mountains. Do you, what, what if you actually took this seriously? What, what if you as an individual, you as a family, you as a church, what if you took this very seriously? And what if you started intentionally preparing yourself for this? Right, and, and realizing it's going to be some journeys because, you know, there are some countries, they won't let you come and live there. They won't let you come and stay there, but they will let you visit there. Now, you, you could go visit there for a short period of time, and during that visit there, and I've got all kinds of stories about how these short visits that are kind of like um, recon. You know, you're, you're going in to find where is that man of peace, where is that open door, because I promise you there are open doors everywhere around the world. What if you prayed that way? Um, what if you got on joshuaproject.net and you started looking? They've already listed there all the unreached or uncontacted people groups in the world. Right? And an unreached people is where then less than 1% of the people within a given group have any exposure to the gospel. Right? So if 5% of the people have exposure to the gospel, they don't consider it unreached. But if, if less than 1% of the people have exposure, it's considered unreached. And there are over 6,000 unreached people groups in the world right now. Over 6,000 unreached people groups. Independent Baptists only have 5,500 missionaries. We couldn't take all of our existing missionaries and redeploy one family to each place and still get to the unreached people groups. You know, you know we, all, all the assets are sitting right here. And let me say to you, you may think you don't know enough. You, you might think you don't know enough. The idea of you doing some real authentic missionary work scares you. Like, oh, I don't know enough. Let me tell you what you need to know. Do you know the gospel? We need people who know the gospel and can communicate it effectively because the first great need out there in the world is salvation, the gospel. Salvation. What happens to somebody when they get saved? Can you explain what that process is, the new nature? How about some basic discipleship? How to read the Bible, how to pray, how to study the, the scriptures. What about baptism? What is a church? Like, we don't need you to know Ph.D. level um, things in the Bible. It's the basics that you know because you've been in church your whole life. You say, but, 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 but I'm not, I, I mean, I know I've heard all these things all my life. Oh, that comes back to faithfulness we talked about this morning, right? You're not faithful unless you can teach others also. So if you looked at yourself and said, well, I think the problem I find about myself right now is I've not been faithful because I'm not ready to teach others also. Now, what would happen if you went up to your pastor and said, pastor, I am not equipped to teach others also. I'm ashamed that that's the way it is, but I'm ending it right now. I want to teach others also. Can you help me? I think your pastor will go, I'm too busy to help you. I mean, really, what would happen if everyone in this room, men and women, said, Lord, forgive me. I've been a consumer of Christianity. 
I have been feasting and I have been enjoying, but I'm not a propagator of that. Like I, I've not been, I have not allowed myself to be equipped to do it. And then what you'll find is you can do submissions journeys. And there's all kinds of ways to do those journeys. Uh, we've, we really, we've done seven, we've done 13 missions journeys from our church in Wenatchee. Right. And I don't I don't think this is the model by which it has to be done, because I think things go longer than three weeks. But right now, that's all we can do because of the way the lifestyle that everybody has. It's, it's been tough to etch out those three weeks. I'm like, but I'll take it. And you know what's happening? People are getting saved and churches are getting started, even when people have been able to etch out a three week journey in order to do it. Now we can talk about how do we change our lifestyle a bit so we can get a three-month journey, or maybe a six-month journey, or maybe God's given me a lifetime journey. This is what God's told us to do, is now commit our life um, to doing it and helping others to do it also. Missions is journeys. Would you be willing to be part of your church's missions journeys? Now, I think a lot of our Baptist churches have been very good at teaching people to do it here. Grab some tracks go soul winning, go witnessing, go evangelizing. And obviously in the church here, this is being done. People are getting saved. People are getting baptized. People are getting added. Wonderful. That's fantastic. But could this be done in all the world? And the answer to that is yes. And if, if you are considering missions, like if, if you feel like God might be calling you um, to go uh, as we are, uh, in, in like a permanent capacity into missions, I would challenge you to study these things that we've talked about. Um, okay, one more, one more story. God was teaching me missions as journeys, and as God taught me, I apologized for what he taught me. I'd gone to Fiji in 1997, uh, 1995, uh, sorry, 1995. In 1997, at 21 years old, I moved up into the town of Nosori to plant our first church there, Nosori Baptist Church. We started in February of 1997. We started evangelizing. People started getting saved. And uh, six months into that, we went and had a youth camp in a place called uh, Nalawa, near the village of Borotu. We got up into Nalawa. We took about, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 uh, teenagers. We went up. We had this youth camp. And every night... People from surrounding villages came to that meeting. And, and, and so we're preaching the gospel, and villagers are getting saved. And at the end of that youth camp, I baptized seven adults from the village where we had that youth camp. Uh, they got saved during the day. I was discipling them. We baptized them. Well, then I, I take the three-and-a-half-hour drive back to Nosori where we've just planted a baby church. And I'm like, Lord, what do I do? Because we've got a church here in Nosori, and now we've got saved and baptized people in Barotu, and I realized I can't be in two places at the same time. Now, at that time, I didn't know that I, the six months I'd spent at Nosori was already twice as long as Paul spent anywhere in, mo in most places. So I said, Lord, I don't know what to do. So here's what I did. I grabbed a couple of the guys that had gotten saved, and I said to them, guys, I'm going to have to send you up to Barotu to preach on Sundays. So what I did during the week is I taught those guys, and then they went up on Sunday and taught those guys. So they're only like four or five months ahead of the people that just got saved over there. And then I said, once a month, I'll go up myself. I'll spend a week there, and I'll do discipleship with them. So I'm going up once a week. You guys go up on weekends. So who was I using to do the preaching? Uh, new converts. 
And then I would journey and go up there. And then after this got done, I said, Lord, forgive me that I don't have enough men ready to send. I said, I'm not going to let this happen again. I'm going to start a Bible institute. I'm going to train men properly so that the next time you open a door for us, I'll be ready with well-trained men. So we started our Bible institute. And no doubt the Bible institute was a blessing. We were teaching doctrine and all that, but here's what happened. I didn't go to all the villages where there were open doors because I thought it would be irresponsible if I went up to that village and I preached and people got saved, and I didn't have somebody trained to leave there in that village. And my idea of trained was still kind of the American model of trained, right? You need a certain amount of, by, by the way, you should know, I only had a semester of Bible college. But I, I was still feeling guilty that I need to train our guys. You need to have more training than I have or had or whatever it might be. And this is what I truly believe. Because I had been taught and believed a stagnant model of missions, we did establish eight churches in 23 years. But I feel like if I would have had the confidence in what I'm teaching you tonight, I feel like I would have gone to so many other villages and so many other islands and so many other places. I feel like I would have done that. But I didn't know that missions was journeys. I thought I had to do my responsibility and pastor that one church and pastor it very well, which I did for a number of years. And I left too much of Fiji unreached in that model. Missions is journeys. Now, before we do uh, a closeout, um, because this is more teaching, would it be okay if, if people had questions? Would, would you guys like to maybe ask a question or make a comment? Because th this could be like rattling your brain a little bit. I know it rattled mine for a while. Does anybody like want to ask a question at this point? Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. So his question is, what about language? Okay. Did, did, uh, so go back to the illustration I gave to you in Mongo. How did I preach the gospel to those people? I used a lost person. I used a lost person to translate. So when you look at the world, there are probably five major trade languages of the world. English. English is almost in every place in the world. French. Right? Russian, Spanish, Mandarin, right? maybe Portuguese. Right? You're really looking at about six languages that if you know one of those six languages, almost anywhere you go in the world, somebody speaks that language that can translate into a local dialect. So I would say, for the most part, you do not need to learn a language. I would say that if a church is going to reach the whole world, you should divide your church up into those six languages. Parents, if you thought your kids were going to be missionaries, get them into languages early in life because kids can learn them faster. So if you've got some kids that speak Russian, some that speak French, some that speak Spanish. So if God opens a door to go to a French-speaking part of the world, like, oh, we got, 12, we got 12 young people that we can put over there. So I would say language is not as much as a, a barrier. And we have these really cool tools. Um, I, I meet people that speak different languages now. And when I realize that, I've got Google Translate. I pick the language I speak and I put it and they go, oh, and then they speak and it comes back to me. So again, I would say utilize the tools that we have at our, our disposal. Uh, God may want you to learn a language if you're going to go to a part of the world, but why wait? Like, oh, just, so here's a missionary on deputation for three years going to a Spanish speaking country. And at the end of his deputation, he doesn't speak Spanish. Like, you, you understand, we've got all these cool tools that you can put an earbud while you're driving down the road. Even though I don't like deputation, at least learn the language while you're on the road to that.
Good question. Yes, sir. I would love it to change. I would love it to change. And here's just some ideas. And again, these are just ideas. I don't have a, a, a perfect answer and solution to it. But, but if I could wipe it out all over and start over from fresh, I, I would say that when a church does its missions budget, a significant part of that missions budget should be to send your own people. That would be the first thing is send your own people. As much as is possible, collect your money and give your money with the idea we're going to get our own people there. Uh, it's a little bit easier for a larger church. There's a lot of smaller churches where that's not possible. The way I would see it is we, and again, this is not telling you how to do it. I'm just saying these are my opinions. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, deputation was three months at most. It was three months, and you needed like $300 a month. You needed six churches to give you 50 bucks a month, and you could go. Uh, economy has changed since then. We can't do 50 bucks anymore. You realize that 50 or 100 Dollars can't even fill up a tank of gas anymore. So I, I would say we need to do larger amounts of money for fewer numbers of missionaries. That that would go a long ways. Um, an average missionary has to call 10 churches before one will agree to give them a meeting. And that's because you can't have a missionary every service, obviously. Um, and then it's usually for every five churches a missionary gets to, one church will take them on for support. Average missionaries trying to raise $8,000 a month, another issue for another time, but $8,000 a month, if that would mean 80 churches giving him $100 a month. If it takes five churches to go to for every one that will support you, that means he'll have to go to 400 churches to get that $8,000 a month, right? So now you take 400 churches divided by 52 weeks out of the year. How long is it going to take you to do it? So again, I think the math is way out. I think, I think our missions giving hasn't kept up with inflation. Um, I think it would be nice if 10 churches collectively together would send a missionary to a field because then you, you just get, you get a group of churches that are aligned together and say, hey, if you've got a guy going, let us know. We're going to pump 800 bucks a month into that missionary. Home church is going to do it. You could actually, I think because you still need churches to support each other in doing it, but I think you could get a larger dollar amount with a fewer number of churches. And then a missionary, when he's back, could spend a good chunk of time with each church and you, you know them well. So that's just one of my ideas of how to do it. Yes, sir. How did you and your family have to this All my kids were born there, except one. Silas was born on, on furlough, so I just moved there. And then, uh, well, you should ask my wife. Uh, she's the only one that had to acclimate to that was my wife. Um, my wife, uh, by, by nature, is a city girl, and I took her to jungles. So let me tell you the only way you acclimate. The only way you acclimate is Romans 12, 1 and 2. You present your body as a living sacrifice. If you are not a living sacrifice, you will not acclimate. You will only complain. You will find everything about the country, the culture, the food, the roads, the weather, everything will bother you all the time. Uh, by the way, people are bothered by America as well. So I would say the only way to acclimate is to present your body as a living sacrifice Yield yourself up unto God, and the grace of God is absolutely sufficient. Uh, God will acclimate you by his grace. And if, you, if you're not acclimating, it's probably because you're selfish and self-centered, and God's going to have to deal with that part of you so that you can acclimate. <laughs> Very good. Yes, sir. 
Yeah. I know John the Baptist yeah. and his followers, and that probably ignited that school. Mm -hmm. So, like Paul said, mm -hmm. he trained them totally because, you know, there was a conflict. Yeah. Do you run into that conflict with some of the Works for Salvation churches mm -hmm. or even counterfeits? Mm -hmm. Do you run into that out there in the jungle? Yes. Right, right now, you have to, Christianity has circled the globe already. Right? There, there's versions of Christianity almost everywhere on the globe now. Uh, you've got the unreached areas where you're basically dealing with Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and those type of people. So there's less competition for Christianity, so to speak. But yeah, when we were in Zambia, I mean, I, we're dealing with people in Zambia who've been lied to by false versions of Christianity you know, I have this group of young, uh, young men and young women, and I'm trying to get them to read the Bible. I realize none of them read the Bible. And I'm like, do you think you could read the whole Bible cover to cover? And they all said, no. Why not? They said, it'll make you crazy. I said, what do you mean it'll make you crazy? And the, the, the Pentecostal uh, faith healing movements have told the people in Zambia, do not read the Bible. You need to trust us to give prophecies. So everywhere you go in Zambia, nobody reads the Bible. So we've t we took one container, um, 20,000 Bibles. I got them printed in China, by the way. I love it. China. The best Bibles you've ever seen. Leatherette Bibles, stitched, high-quality Bibles. It cost me $3.85 to get them printed and landed in Zambia, Africa. Anyway, that was really cool. But, um, yes, we do run into that all the time. So what you need to do if you're going to a particular country, when we go to Zambia, we realize the things you're going to face there are everybody believes in a works-based salvation. None of them read the Bible, and they all pretty much have some kind of Pentecostal word of faith healing influence or Seventh-day Adventist. So once you've kind of scanned the country, you prepare your team with those particular issues that you're going to deal with in that regard. Yeah, Satan's working harder for the world than we are. So yes, there is definitely a battle when we get there. Thank you. Somebody else? These are good, great questions. Please ask them. I, I, I love it. Um, this, is, this is school time, not really preaching time. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. I, uh, I find a mix. I, I find openness and rejection in both of them. So, for example, in Zambia, Zambia considers themselves a Christian country. It's in their constitution. We are a Christian country. When you walk into Zambia, they are so happy and so glad that you are there. And although they're completely wrong about their faith, they are very open. Like one of the richest harvest fields in the world right now is in Zambia. So you get, you get some gospel tracts, you get down on the street, and you'll never move. You'll, you'll just be in your ground right there. You might walk five feet, but people are going to see that you have a gospel tract. They're going to ask you, what is that? You're going to tell them it's about salvation in Christ, and they're going to say, do you have time to sit down and talk to me? So you're going to get basically receptiveness. Um, if you were to go into a Catholic area, you're going to get massive resistance. So their version of Christianity provides a lot of resistance. So it depends on the type of Christian influence that has been there. And, and likewise, if you go into Muslim or Buddhist parts of the world, uh, different groups are very closed off to it. Others are very open. If you go into Sierra Leone right now, for example, uh, the major religion there is Islam. And yet the, the Christian missionaries that are going there are seeing Muslims saved 
left, right, and center. If you went to a different area of the world, you might get killed in sharing your faith to Muslims there. So it's, it's not really one or the other. It's, it really depends on the particular um, area at that time. Very good question. But anybody else? Yes, sir? Okay. Um, honestly speaking, honestly speaking, um, pastoring in Amer- America was kind of like purgatory. If there was such a thing, I would say it's uh, no. I find the Western world in general, America, Australia, Europe, Western civilization is rejecting God and Christianity. We are a very self-centered, ego-centered. It's all about me. And Christians in America are very proud of the next to nothing that they know. They're not pliable. They're not really teachable, generally speaking. They're overly opinionated uh, in a lot of things, and they won't, the majority don't humble themselves and listen. And so it's, it's why the greatest center of evangelism is no longer American churches. And if I could just keep that to our realm, our independent Baptist realm. Um, somewhere, somewhere along, along the line, because we, we are the Bible-believing, conservative, fundamental people. We've stood for the truth, blah, blah, blah. But it's almost become now, uh, I thank God I'm not you, 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 and you, right? And so we're, um, so that, that's one. Something else we've done, I think we've, we've gone into a, a model of let's hold our ground and not lose anymore. So instead of the idea of conquering the world, we're trying to hold our ground, Right. Uh, The average Baptist church in America is not growing. We're losing a lot. And so we do different things. Uh, Sometimes we we compromise a little bit to try and get more people to come in. Or we just say, you know, we're just we're going to hold on till Jesus comes. And uh, we we do the hold the fort model things. Um, So, no, I I would say we have a pride problem in America. Like our our churches in America, we're, we're very proud because. Um, one, I'm very thankful to be able to preach this at your church. Um, I don't preach these type of things, what we're talking about, without talking to the pastor ahead of time, because this could create some real problems. Um, so I appreciate your pastor's open-heartedness to preaching this, which tells me a lot about what the heart and the spirit of this church is about. But we are in, we are in an absolute mess in the United States of America. And I think our response needs to be get on our face before God and say, God, break us, teach us, humble us, forgive us. Our hearts are open. I find it way easier to preach in the rest of the world compared to here in America. Or, In fact, I was in Fiji for two weeks. I'm like, oh. You know, I, I don't know. When, when our team left Fiji, um, I don't know how many people came to the airport, 40, 50 like 40 or 50 of our Fijian brothers and sisters traveled over four hours to meet our team at the airport just to spend a couple of hours farewelling us and then drove hours back around the island. And that's the, the depth of the hunger that's there. I mean, we wouldn't do that. I mean, 
so my, my point, I'm not trying to bash because what, what I see right here tonight is wonderful. The fact that you are here for this conference about this, this is a good sign to me. And, and I thank God for that. But I'd say generally speaking, we're, we're in a huge problem. Sir? What's the primary language? English. They were a British colony for 100 years. So English is the official language. They have several other languages they speak, though. Mm-hmm. Okay, four things. Four things. If, if I get that three weeks only, if I can do it, I'm going to hammer four things. There are four things in the New Testament that are called truth. Okay, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the first truth I need to get them is Jesus. Who is Jesus? And depending on, um, like, if, if you're in a place like Zambia, they, they already believe in the God of the Bible. Right? So we're already a leg up that they believe it, but i got to get them to the truth of who Jesus is. So once we get to salvation, we want to get the nature of God, the nature of Jesus. So who is this Jesus? We talk a little bit about the triune God, who, who God himself is. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So I've got to introduce them then to the Bible. What is the Bible? Why do we need it? I want to break up the parts, at least at a minimum, the Old Testament, the New Testament. I want to teach them how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible, give its basic components. And I want them to be drilled into their brain. This book is the final authority for everything that we do. So what will happen, I will definitely find within those Bible studies, especially if they're kind of a Christianized country, we will find areas where they've they've incorrectly believed things. And I want to straighten it out by the Bible. And I want to teach them to adjust. Like in Zambia, um, I found out that they all believe lying is okay. I couldn't believe it. I was doing a Bible study, and I said, how many of you think it's okay to lie? And they all put their hands up. These are all the same people that were discipling. And I said, oh, okay, can, can you give me a scenario where lying is okay? And so one girl says, yes, like last night the Bible study went really late, and I'm not allowed to be out past dark, and it got dark, and my uncle called me, and he was very angry. And so I lied to him. I told him I'm at a Bible study, and two of the guys are going to walk me home, even though I knew they weren't going to walk me home. That way my uncle wasn't mad. Okay. Anything else? Another guy said, you know, like if, if my friend robbed a store and the police came to me and asked me if I knew, I would lie and say, no, I don't know. And I said, why would you say no? Because he would go to jail. And then his father would hate me. Oh, so then I just said, can we do a Bible study? And I just went through all the Bible verses online that they'd never read. And they just stood there and stared at me. Now, and then it was now with what you've seen from the Bible, is it okay to lie? And they're all like, but then they were like, but if I didn't lie, my uncle would be very angry at me. Or if I lied, that boy's father would hate me because his son went to jail because of me. But then I was able to show that there's a lot of corruption in the country because of this and that. So the Bible, is the Bible the final authority? Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is truth. Uh, I'll send the spirit of truth and he'll guide you into all truth. Every place pretty much now that we go to has been influenced by the charismatic Pentecostal movement. So we have to establish the truth about the spirit and how seducing spirits are creating a false version of Christianity. And then the church, the church is the ground and the pillar of the truth. So I want to talk about the nature of Jesus Christ, the nature of the Bible, the nature of the Holy Spirit and the nature of the, uh, the church, those four Things. So I'm going to work in various ways to establish those things, because if I can get those people to be correct about God, who is God, who is Jesus, what is his salvation, what is the Bible, how is it the final authority, 
who is the Holy Spirit and how does he guide us into the truth and what is the role of the church that you're now part of in those things. If I can get those four basically founded, then we'll build on that either from a distance or on return trips. There. Well, you know, you know what? I, I don't have a full answer to that yet. Um, I know that in my own church, I faced conflict because I had, I had people literally say to me, I think our church is out of balance. I think we're too focused on missions. Like I've, I've had that said to me by more than one person. We're too focused on missions uh, because it does get uncomfortable because it's like we're going a lot and we're kind of there's this um, there's this expectation that I should be part of reaching the world. So I think guilt and conviction come in on on people. So I, I have had that said you're out of balance in the area of missions. But um, however, I've I've helped a few churches. They're just starting to dabble in it. at least four churches have started doing it, and uh, I don't think they've been doing it long enough yet to find out what the explosions and the feedback are on that, so I'll let you know when I get to it. Um, <laughs> I would say secondly, though, I was at a church in Arlington, Washington, and there, there's a couple more messages in this series, and one of the men, he raised his hand and he said, two, two important things he said. Number one, he said, this is extremely overwhelming. Like when you start thinking about it as a church right now, it's like this is really overwhelming. This idea that we as a church are responsible for the whole world, this is like he said it's overwhelming. And I said, praise God. That's where it's supposed to be. The Christian life is not normal. Everything that God asks you to be. Like just as a believer is unreasonable. Nobody can do that. On your own discipline, your own effort, you'll always fall short. It takes the Holy Ghost. And like the work that he's called us to do, when you start taking personal responsibility, it is extremely overwhelming. And that's where it's supposed to be. You know what happens when you're overwhelmed by the thought of something? You realize I'm not smart enough to figure out how to do this. Where does it lead you? It leads you to get on your face before God. Because then the next question is, so what, 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 do we, what do we do first? I said, you get on your face before God and ask him. Because I was asking God these questions. And, and, and God didn't just overwhelm us in one moment, but, but God did make it clear, get a group of your people together and go to Zambia. And when we, went to, when we went to Zambia on that first trip that we took together, I had certain objectives to pray. And one of the things is, God, is this just a one-off trip to help this missionary? Because if it is, we're going to help the missionary. We're going to evangelize people. Or do you have more for us to do? And you know what God did? God opened a door. And that's what we'll talk about in, in, a, in a follow-up lesson is how the Spirit of God leads in this. Because what you ultimately need, okay, you can see the teaching that's there. You can see a pattern's there. But what step does God want this church to take? And only God can reveal that step. So you've just got to collectively, and it's got to be more than your pastor, because I think your pastor and the leadership could say, we're all in on this. But if this body is not in all, in all of this, then there is going to be warfare within this body. Um, how can two walk together except they be agreed? 
So that the church family together has to say, you know what, God, we can see this. We're going to do it. You need to come to your pastor and say, Pastor, we don't know what this means, but we're all in on this and we're, and we're praying for it. And that is the safest place uh, to be. And then if it ends up being a catastrophe, could you let me know about it so I can modify my message before I go to other churches? I would appreciate that. Thank you. All right. Any, anybody else? Um, yes, sir. Your your three lessons into me sharing the information with you. The, the, honestly speaking, I, I I got what you're saying. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you for that question. A good friend of mine, Larry Cox, is helping me put this into print, uh, some of this. So I am really lousy when it comes to writing. I'm better at speaking. So if, if people can help me take that and put it on paper. But, yes, we are working on that. Um, yes, I do have a plan. Uh, my plan is that in 20 years from now, we have a victory party to celebrate that everyone on earth has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate uh, plan. Paul did it in 32 years, but I figure we have a leg up on him, so we should be able to do it in 20 years or so. My plan is, for, for me personally, my, my plan is, one, to speak to and help churches. And not that I have all the answers to this yet. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping my heart open to God, but for various churches that are like, we want to do this, how can I come alongside and, and help? So if you're, you're planning on, we're going to do it, I would love to be part of that it, as a team is getting ready to go, actually helping train that team, coach that team, maybe go along with that team, maybe send somebody that's been before along with a team, um, and then to do it myself. I've got open doors into Angola. I've got open doors into India. I've got open doors into Ukraine. So there'll be some where I'll go. I'll take people with me, inspiring other churches to do it. Um, that's kind of a plan, you know? I mean, the plan is to follow the Holy Ghost where he opens the, the doors. So, but thank you for the pricking to print a bit more. I'll, I'll work on that. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay, number one, I would strongly recommend that if, if you have high school age kids, junior high school, that you get a program called Impact Geography. Impact Geography, a good friend of mine, Matt Stallman, who has this same vision and actually was instrumental in helping me in this vision. What's that? Oh, great. Matt Stallman, he, and then Jacob Ray, who was also here, they actually wrote a high school curriculum called Impact Geography. It's a one-year course, and I would, I would encourage adults to do it as well. But what it does is it actually gives you the entire geography of the whole world. It breaks down all the regions and all the people groups in the world. It introduces you to the religion and where that country stands as the needs of the gospel are right now. So you get the geography of the world and you get its religions and where it stands according to the gospel. And if you do that course, you're basically putting in front of your kids, look at this group, look at this group, look at this group, look at this group. Um, my, my children, 
um, we, we talk about this. And there was a move for quite a while. I don't want to push my kids into the ministry. We don't want mama called and dada called and pastor called. And it was almost like this reverse idea that God only calls a few people into it. And I've said, no, no, I told my kids, sorry, you were born for ministry. This is, this is what we do. God called you an arrow in my hand. I get to polish you and shoot you at the enemies, and that's, that's the gospel. So I, I, we, did, we did not raise our kids for careers. If God gave our kids a career, it would be because that career would be part of the gospel plan that God has for them, right? So that, that the career is the side thing that we do. Our whole life is the gospel. So those, those are things you teach your kids. Why are you learning this? Why are you, if God has given you an aptitude for a particular field, then follow that aptitude. But that's just a, a tent-making business on the journey of the missions that were involved. So I'd say keeping that in front of your kids all the time. Read missionary stories. Get more involved with the missionaries that you have. Find out what they're doing. Read the prayer letters with your kids. Those are some things that you could do. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, very easily. If I was given a Sunday school class, by the time I was done with it, they'd all be missionaries. They'd all be going to different parts of the world. That's all there is to it. I, that's what, what is the Bible all about? The Old Testament is all about the glory of God going to the nations of the world. The New Testament is all about the gospel going to the nations of the world. Every story in the Bible is about the glory of God. You do Daniel. So when you do the lion's den and when you do all, do all those things, also put in there where Nebuchadnezzar says, I now extol the God of heavens. This was all about his conversion when he came to the Lord. So, yeah, that's what, in fact, I think if we did Sunday school, right? If you took a kid from eight years old to 18, if you took that 10-year period, eight to 18. Now, eight's an important number in the Bible because God takes two kings at eight years old, says one was wicked and one was godly. God killed Zedekiah before he was nine. So at eight years old, I think God says your brain is at a level where you can be accountable for truth that you've learned. If our Sunday schools were not entertainment hours where we just babysat the kids for an hour, but if we took that Sunday school and said, we're going to run these kids through the Bible, so by the time our kids are 18, they won't need Bible college. We actually finished everything that they need. I think we could utilize our Sunday school and our youth groups quite differently. Yeah. Thank you. Pastor, I'm okay. It's almost, it's, it's almost 8, and they're still raising hands. So, okay. All right. Yes, sir. I don't know if you're planning on talking about it in coming weeks but, or in the coming days, but... Um, I'll do coming weeks, too. Team composition. About what? Team composition. Yep. Tomorrow night, missions as teams. We'll go into teams tomorrow night. Yeah, very good question. Thank you. Thank you for asking, by the way. There, there's no point to just talking if, if you don't get a little bit of feedback in there. Yeah. <laughs> How do you fund it? Um, I have never had the money to go on any of these missions journeys. Okay. At January of this year, um, before I knew that I was going to resign as pastor and go into missions, we'd already been praying about a Fiji trip. And we started praying in January, my family, Lord, would you please provide the money for all of us to go to Fiji? We'd all like to go as a family to Fiji. Lord, would you provide the money? Um, if you want to know how to fund it, just read George Miller's autobiography. And that enough said after you read that. All right, God, God provides for it. Um, half of my family had tickets to go. And then about a month before we went to um, Fiji, you know, the half that weren't going, I think we kind of gave up praying for it because we kind of thought that was God's answer. Only half of us go. And we were having dinner 
with uh, with a lady in our church. And uh, she just said, um, so you, uh, who's all going to Fiji? Uh, what about the rest of you? No, we're not going. Oh, so we kept on our dinner. And then after dinner, she came out. She called me into the backyard, and she said, I have something for you. She had a paper bag with $5,000 in it. And she said, I've had this money sitting in my safe for a number of years, and God told me to send your family. So that, that's how it gets funded. Okay, the money for missions already exists. It's, it's, just, it's just in the wrong bank account right now. It just has to get transferred. Right? So, so seriously, the way it gets funded is you take your resources and you ask God what those resources are for. And of whom much is given, much is required. Not everybody has the same capacity to earn, but everybody has something to give. And, and I feel that if we prayed about our resources better, I don't think you should just throw money, by the way. I, I think sometimes we've been irresponsible with the money that we have given because we figure if we just give it and throw it at missions, it meant something to God. I think we should be strategic with our missions money. If you're a businessman, right, you don't just throw money out there. You look strategically, where is their return on this mission investment? So I think there should be carefulness on that. But, but I think... Um, um, 2008, that world financial crisis, remember we had that uh, financial crisis? There was uh, a man that I knew in a, in a church. He was a fireman. And I'd been in their church the previous year, and he said to me, man, he said, I'm so excited. I, I've increased my faith promise $25 a month. I'm like, wow, good. That's, that's really wonderful. The next year I was there, it was after the financial crisis. And he had taken a 20% pay cut as part of the, the reduction. I said, man, how did that 20% pay cut hit you? And he's like, actually, we just we, we didn't actually have to do very much rearranging. We just rearranged a few things, and we're actually still doing quite well. Uh, don't say it, Corey. Don't say it, Corey. Don't say it, Corey. I'm going to say it. What if you would have given that 20% to the Lord before he took it away in a financial crisis? I mean, he just, he just realized that he could live with 20% less than he did without really adjusting his lifestyle. I'm like, man, what if that would have gone to missions all that time? So I think, how do we fund it? I think we all collectively say, God, everything I own is at your disposal. And if, if you want it. So I think as God begins to put a, something together for your church and God begins to put it on some people's hearts, I think all the resources are right here in this church to be able to do it. So that's, that's how I fund it. Yes, sir. I will save that for the Holy Spirit and missions on Tuesday night because that's going to be part of that lesson. So make sure you're here Tuesday night, and I'll answer that. Uh, if, and if I can say one other thing about giving, um, God's demand on us is everything. If, if you don't forsake everything that you have, you can't be my disciple. You can't piecemeal your devotion to God and your life to God. I, at least I've given this. At least I've done that. God asks for everything. And as soon as you give God everything, then everything after that is easy. Uh, he expects nothing less than everything. So once he gets everything, it's a piece of cake for the rest of your life from there. God has everything. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Why don't, why don't we just take a minute right at our seats and pray? I, 